Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing again. That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From the City of Angels in Los Angeles, California, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the caregiver's caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, former mayor of a California beach town and best-selling author, Debbie Peterson. And we're also coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on numerous syndicated radio and podcast networks on 26 global audio and video platforms like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Vimeo, Stitcher Radio, the list goes on and on. In fact, we are proud to be voted number one caregiver podcast on Feedspot out of thousands and also number one on Player FM, the top 50. And we have an especially exciting show planned for you today. Kim Kid Curry is the author of Come Get Me, Mother. I'm Through, The Death of Fairness and Bonnie's Law, The Return of to Fairness, a renowned radio broadcaster for 33 years. Kim worked in some of America's finest cities, including Pueblo, Knoxville, San Antonio, Washington, D.C., Baltimore, Miami. He was a DJ in different time slots and the program director of two of America's legendary stations, KTSA, AM, San Antonio, and Power 96, Miami. As a DJ, creative freedom and owner trust led to huge ratings for Kim, where he consistently scored the highest market rating in his time slot. As per program director, Kim led Power 96, the highest ratings in the station's history and achieved the most significant cumulative <laughs> audience in the Southeast United States. In 2005, Kim was forced into retirement after being diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. 16 years later, modern science offered hope and a path to recovery. In his debut memoir, Come Get Me Mother, I'm Through, Kim details his celebrated radio career and devastating diagnosis. But before we get started, I do want to take this moment Thank my last week's guest, Debbie Compton, three-time caregiver for parents with different forms of dementia and Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and vascular dementia. All right, enough of that. Kim, so great to have you on the Caregiver Dave show. Well, I appreciate it very much. Nice to meet you, too. Thanks for having me today. Likewise. I always li like to ask my guests, just who is Kim Curry, and why was he placed on this earth? Well, surprisingly enough, uh, I, I, I grew up in high school in a little town here in Colorado, I was a senior class president, uh, uh, the drum major of the high school band. Uh, I was in the modern choir. All of that led me to be an artsy type person. I really enjoyed performing. And my dad worked at the only radio station in my hometown in Canyon City, Colorado, just one radio station. And he came home one day and he asked if I was, would like to babysit the at the radio station. So I went up. Uh, that's how I was making my money in high school. I babysit my parents' friends' kids. <laughs> so I thought that I was going to go to the, the, the radio station to pick up the general manager's kids and babysit. But what my father was saying was, no, they needed you to babysit the Sunday morning God show. Because every week what they would do is they would record the services at the churches in town and then play them back on Sunday morning and nobody wanted that job. So that's how I got on, on the radio in the first place. <laughs> my father got me that gig. But it just started a, it started a little flicker of a flame that... 33 years later, ended up being a, a really incredible radio career that I'm very proud of. So that's that's my radio story. Well, that's quite a story. Debbie, welcome to the show. Uh, Debbie is my co-host. 
and um, she's she also has a radio show, don't you, Debbie? Or a podcast? I have a podcast, Corruption Chronicles. Yeah. Cool, Tim. Uh, I want to ask you uh, the first question we'd like to ask you, which I just did. Right? Who is Kim Curry, and why was he placed on this earth? Well, let's talk about overcoming adversity, uh, soul stamina. What are you talking about when you talk about that? Well, first of all, I was living a really fun life. Uh, when you're the guy running the biggest radio station in Miami, Florida, you're kind of an important dude. Uh, but, you know, I, then 2004, I, I was having exacerbations, things happening to me throughout my life that I didn't know what they were. And they started all the way back in fifth grade where I had fallen in a, in a race that I was in. But for some reason, I didn't feel like I could feel my feet touching the ground. It felt funny as I walked. Oh. And then it went away. Uh, years later, I felt like I was in San Antonio. And uh, my vision started leaving my right eye and my hands started curling up. And because I was in San Antonio, I thought, well, I've been bitten by a fire ant. <laughs> well, then years later, I go, I'm in Baltimore, Maryland. And the same thing starts happening. I think, well, I've been stung by a killer bee. Uh, but in 2004, all these little things that were happening to, to me throughout my life really started manifesting into debilitation. Uh, the joke around my office was that it looked like I was drunk all the time because I was bouncing back and forth off the wall. The truth is multiple sclerosis was starting to take effect and I was losing the, the ability to even use the bottom of my feet. I couldn't feel anything. So it was really a change. Uh, and, and it came about really quickly. It was only about within a six-month period that, that my mother was the one, my wife and my family were out here in Colorado on vacation, and it was my mother who said uh, to my wife that she wanted me to go to the doctor because there was something in my face that didn't look right. And it was the uh, diagnosis of multiple sclerosis in 2005 that changed everything. Was it the cognitive type or the physical type or both? A little bit of both. A little bit really? of both. Physical type, my, it was multiple sclerosis, as you know, is lesions on your brain and the lining around your nerves called myelin deteriorates so slowly my legs have stopped working slowly i've lost vision in my right eye slowly my hands started feeling uh, getting feeling in my hands so these things came on slowly uh and and it was it was at what age bad. i'm sorry at what age i was 49 years old that diagnosed officially at 50 years old so i was a regular guy playing golf playing basketball and everything and then it all got kind of taken away from me. And, you know, we talk, we're a caregiver conversation here. My wife, the, you know, she never meant to be a caregiver. Uh, it was something that came upon us, uh, like I said, out of nowhere. I remember that after getting diagnosed and then deciding that I had to leave my job because I couldn't, cognitively, yes, I couldn't even run the radio station anymore. Mm -hmm. uh, stress is very much a related, uh, a, a MS-related disease, and my job was built on stress. So I was constantly having problems. Uh, in fact, my doctor told me to go to my secretary and ask if I had blown up at anybody lately. And I was like, no, I don't ever get mad. And I went back to my secretary and I said, so have I been a little uneasy lately? And she was, yes. So all of that forced me out of the business because I was very proud of my radio station. And if I wasn't going to be able to run it to make it successful, I didn't want to be in the building. Mm. And the MS was coming on so strong, I could only think of one thing. That's to get away and start figuring out what was happening. Because I deteriorated really quickly. I went from, you know, a cane to crutches to a wheelchair within oh. a year's time. 
And so it was it was quite dramatic. How did your bosses and your fans react to all this? I kind of disappeared on purpose. I think it was something in my head. I just I got out of when I left the radio station. Did you let them know you were leaving or you just disappeared? Well, no, we we had talked about it. They tried to keep me. They tried to find a place for me in the office. They wanted to keep me in the building because, quite frankly, I brought them lots of success. But I couldn't because my mind was being taken over by this chronic disease. I didn't know what was going on. I really thought for eight years that I was going to die. I thought there was going to be a real problem and it was never going to stop. But, you know, there comes that time when the modern science of of multiple sclerosis medicine, my doctor changed my medicine and then insisted that I take uh, 50,000 IUs of vitamin D every day. My doctor, Dr. Alan Bowling. Vitamin D as in David? Vitamin D is in David, my doctor's book, Optimal Health with Multiple Sclerosis. He believes there's a connection with vitamin D and the medicine that, that they have. If you take the vitamin D, he feels it almost helps the medicine work better in your body. Now, I can tell you that for six months after taking my new medicine, I didn't do the vitamin D and nothing changed. But my wife, well, the doctor <laughs> convinced my wife that she needed to make me take this vitamin D. So suddenly, I start taking the vitamin D strong for six months, and I don't hear the fingernails down the chalkboard anymore. I don't feel the tension that I'm going to, that it's not going to stop. It's funny how six months after taking the vitamin D, along with my new medicine, things seem like they were going to get better. And how many did. units are you taking? A 50,000 IU. I'm now down to 30. For the first two years, I did 50,000 IU a day. A day? <laughs> yes, sir. Because That's a lot of vitamin D. Well, uh, got a five thousand you know pill, right? Well, uh, they like yeah, they take about three or four of those a day, yeah. And but I can tell you that it was it, it was a remarkable change because I really was was sick. I was really hurting, and then suddenly the progression of the disease stopped. I'm not getting any better. I've not gotten any worse. I'm where I was. So Are the you medicine in a wheelchair. Changed. I am in the wheelchair. Yes, I, I won't ever. It's not going to heal. Legs don't work. My legs don't work. Um, my wife, and my daughter. I've got a twenty-year-old daughter who's also in the house. They help me move around all the time. You have a power so, chair? Yes, I do. I actually have a, a. Now I'm. I live on a ranch in a three-story home. Uh, part of my book, part of "Come Get Me, Mother, I'm Through," is the realization that it costs to be disabled in America, and it's not fair. In order for me to get to each level of my house, I had to put in one of these rotating chairs, one of these slide chairs, yeah. up and down, a $30,000 investment. In order to get into my house, I had to put a lift in so I could get from my garage into the main floor. In order to get out the back door, I had to put another lift in in order to get down to the back door so I can go to the backyard. This is all paid for by my wife and myself. Not, And, and you don't get much tax credit for things like that. So... It, it, it really changed a lot of things in my life. So how was and, your cognitive ability before the treatment and after the treatment? Well, there was a... You seem to be pretty cognitively well. Well, I've gotten better. Uh, my doctor believes that there is healing to be done because your brain will heal itself. And now that the medicine, I'm not being beat up by the lesions in my brain, he believes that there's been some healing in some of the areas here. Uh, my bladder used to be a lot worse off than it is today. Uh, my vision in my right eye was a lot worse than it is today. So I am actually believing that after the medicine happened, the progression stopped, and my body has tried to heal itself. 
and things have actually gotten better. I, I had that uh, dystonia. Dy there's a word for the, what happens to your throat. Multiple sclerosis, people had this thing that happened and it closes off. Part of the reason why I had to get off the radio. Well, it's not as bad as today as it was five years ago. So it's slowly getting better. But, Are you ready to go back uh, being a DJ? You know, here's the thing. If you could see me right now in my chair, this little conversation causes stress. <laughs> and my legs are sticking straight out. If you can't wow. tell, I'm having a tough, tough time breathing because I'm stressing right now. My body is reacting. Well, so, relax. You know, it's I, just you and me. <laughs> I know. I know. And Debbie. But that, that, that's just what happens. And so, no, I could never go back to being on the radio because I can't take that minute-by-minute minute stress. Mm. And uh, I had a real high level of I wanted to be good. <laughs> so I, when I, if I can't be really Are you good, a perfectionist, <laughs> you know how that goes. We're all like that. But if I can't do it the way I want to do it, I'm not going to do it. So, uh, so and that's, that's why I became a writer. I had to kind of recreate myself. But again, because we're talking about caregivers, my wife had, my wife, I, when we moved from Florida back to Colorado, when I first got diagnosed, we were in a motel room when my medicine caught up with me. Uh, I had, was in, in my hometown. Uh, I called one of, one of my high school buddies, a friend of mine, a girl, and she came over and gave me my first injection to teach my wife how to give me shots. So my wife has given me well over 10, 15,000 shots since then. Mm. My wife was my date at the Grammys every year. I had a boy band at one time. I helped produce some pretty famous records that you all listen to. Uh, so I used to go to the Grammys every year. My wife was my date at the Grammys. Well, suddenly, when my income basically is is tied to my long-term health plan, which I signed, fortunately, uh, she, we had to come up with another way because in 15 years, our income was going to stop. So my wife, when we moved out to Colorado here, we took all my money and we started investing in properties and doing fixing and flipping. We did about three of these until my wife finally said, you know what? I don't like the way these people are treating me. I can go do this. I can do it better than them. So in this town that I, I grew up in, it's a very small little town, Canyon City, Colorado. My wife went out and got a real estate license. And one year, about, about two years after she got her license, she sold 123 houses in one year. Wow. This is a very small little town. My wife mastered real estate. So then she goes from that. And when you, when you sell that many houses, corporate understands. <laughs> so they started realizing in the Keller Williams corporate office that my wife was really becoming quite the artist at selling homes. So they put her in a program so she could teach other people. She's been doing this consulting thing for the past few years and now has become the CEO of a, of a major real estate firm out of Kansas. Mm -hmm. So my caregiver has gone from being my date at the Grammys to a superstar. So it's good for it, her. I'm real proud of her. I mean, but we're supposed to encourage our, our spouses. Yeah. Uh, I, I really wanted, I could see she wanted to do this and she had done, she had been, she had pushed me for years to try to help me be perfect. It was my turn to help her. And yeah. uh, so my caregiver is, is now quite a big deal. And I'm very proud of her. Debbie, you got any questions? I did. Well, I, here we go again. I, I, I have so much respect for you and your wife. And, you know, it seems like you never really stopped being real go-getters. And 
I would just really appreciate that. And I, I really appreciate your sharing about stress being an issue when you have brain issues. Um, because one of the things that I've noticed, and I kind of beat myself up about it, but I had a brain injury five years ago. And um, I don't take stress well anymore. And I used to. And I kept thinking it was old age. And it kind of bothers me that I don't handle it well. But you've helped me with that. So I think that's a really useful point that you make. You know, I, I used to host the halftime show at the Orange Bowl. Uh, you know, I did big things. Uh, stress and being in front of people has never been an issue for me. I get MS and I start talking to two people. And again, now that we're talking about it, here goes my legs. If you can see them right now, they're starting to stick straight out. And I don't want to knock my light over. <laughs> so let me move my leg. Okay. So stress very much. And we know. There it goes. I didn't mean to. I just knocked my light over. Sorry, my lighting changed. <laughs> you look fine. It, it, you're, you're good. Your light's okay. good. Don't worry about it. So, you know, stress is dangerous in general. We know that. But when you've had something happen to your brain, it really, really throws everything out of kilter. And mm -hmm. it scared me. I'm telling you. I mean, I, the only reason I got into the wheelchair is because after 50 falls, my doctor said, we have to stop this. You've got to stop. You're going to kill yourself because I broke ribs. Uh, it was terrible. Uh, so it, it was, it's never been an easy thing. And it got so desperate. I was so pleased to be able to reinvent myself when my life started calming down. So, so tell I, us I, about the good stuff then. What has happened with you as an author? Well, um, I've always, okay. My, my dad got me in the radio business. So I come from a radio family. I don't know if you even know this. I'm going to bring this up. This is all abstract to some people. But did you know in 1987, there was a law that said you couldn't lie on American broadcast airwaves. Couldn't lie on TV. Couldn't lie on the radio. <laughs> the doctrine was the fairness doctrine. It was in 1987, President Reagan vetoed the Fairness in Broadcasting Act, which rescinded the fairness doctrine. What that meant was, if you heard somebody lie on radio or TV, you had the right to call that TV station or equal radio station time. and demand equal time. I'm sorry, this really gets me stressed. <laughs> okay, so, so when you take that law away in 1987, what happened shortly after that? I had a feature on my radio show when I was a kid called The Bed Check. I would let little kids call in, say whatever they wanted to say about their school, about their principal. I'd fire back some smarty remark. It was a big thing for me. It really helped create my show. Well, Rush Limbaugh thought, well, wait a minute. If I can go on and say all these things and be this negative, I can create this audience. And that raises my ratings. That goes into my pocket. So you then had a complete organization of talk show hosts. And he was the first. But they started piling on after that that had the right to go on and say whatever they want, unabated. So my books are about that. Well, surely you're not insinuating that only the conservatives uh, lie on the radio, are you? Not at all. <laughs> not at all. Anybody. You should have the right. Well, see, what Reagan did is he really, he said it was antagonistic to the rights given in the First Amendment. Well, he stopped me from being able to call a liar out as a liar. So he took my right away to speak about a lie. I should be able to have the right, Democrat or Republican, liberal, conservative, when I hear information that's incorrect, I should be able to have the right to go get that equal time. Now, if you look at the history of 
Reagan rescinded this, he said, because of the First Amendment obligation. But in reality, you can go back and check that there were broadcasters of the day in his offices complaining that equal time was taken away from their bottom line. And because mm. Reagan was always a money man and wanted people to make their money, he said, well, let's just get rid of this rule then if it's costing your bottom line. So that's what my books are about. This actually happened. This, this little thing, The Death of Fairness, which is the first book, was kind of like really happened to my dad and I. He got me started my radio career and I go off and I'm having my career and I come home every couple of years on a vacation and my dad would say, well, they fired Al Madrill. And I said, really? Al's been there forever. Well, they fired him and put on this talk show host, and all this guy's doing is lying. And that would be that's my dad, a news guy, who could tell when people were lying. He he could do research. I'd go away and a couple days, a couple years later, a year later or so I'd come home, and the afternoon radio disc jockey got fired. And they replaced him with another one of these type of talk shows. So in this one town with one radio station, suddenly you had one live broadcast from six in the morning till nine. And then every time after nine, it was this one top, one style of broadcasting that was created to line pockets mm -hmm. by creating chaos. Yeah. So this kept happening to my father. So now, and he would say to me, you know, people are going to stop listening to that station. It's causing real division in this town. Remember old Marty? Marty and I, we don't even talk anymore because of what's going on at that radio station. So... My father, an old-time radio broadcaster, believes that the radio is there to serve the public interest. So when you're not serving the public interest, you've got, this, you've got these talk shows that are not talking about the hometown. There's nobody on the hometown on the radio anymore. It really bothered my father. So my dad dies. Years go by. I come from Canyon City, Colorado. It is the home of the second highest suspension bridge in the world. That's bridge to floor. It used to go from the bridge to the bottom of the Arkansas River. So it was a huge, and it was built in 1890. Wow. Historic. Tourist trap. All sorts of cars, all sorts of buildings, all sorts of trinkets, all sorts of junk. A fire happens, and it wipes out the Royal Gorge, all the buildings. The bridge is still there, but the buildings and everything, fire breaks out, and the smoke overcomes my hometown. And you can't, unless you're social media type of guy, young like us, I knew what was going on. I get a call from my mother, and my mother is screaming on the phone. What's going on? There's a fire. The radio station hasn't said a word. They won't, all they've got are these guys on there, and they're telling those lies again, Kim. They're not even helping us with this fire. So what had happened was the way that radio and the technology happens and occurs the radio station went from being locally uh, owned and operated, run by guys right down the street, to become a syndicated radio station, not even concerning itself with the population. And the day of the biggest fire in town, didn't say a word to the community, didn't tell them what was going on, and it really affected me. So that was the, that's the whole premise of the first book, The Death of Fairness. My let's, second... Let's, uh, let's get back on caregiving, because yes. I know our... Our audience are burned out caregivers. Um, there's lessons that caregivers can learn, uh, lessons your wife learned and lessons that you learn, right? Because caregivers are notorious for not caring for themselves. And um, uh, I always tell caregivers, you know, what if you were 
a person who needed care, you know, would you be expecting, you know, from your caregiver what they're expecting from you? And, you know, in other words, put the shoe on the other foot. So talk about that for a bit. Well, I, I'm, I'm well aware. And I always tell my wife that, you know, I've had a few medical things happen. Not only do I have multiple sclerosis, but my MS doctor who sees my MRIs every year started seeing some spots in my brain that he didn't like. He took these MRIs and gave them to a doctor over in, at, uh, at Craig Hospital here in Denver. And the doctor said, these are oncoming aneurysms. This, wow. this is going to happen. These are going to blow up. And this doctor had an experimental thing where he could go in through my leg and put this stuff in through my body and find that place and squirt this stuff called onyx. Now, onyx froze the aneurysm. And eventually, the, an the, the nerves of the brain started moving around that. And he, he froze the aneurysms and stopped them from happening. In fact, he found he had to. He found an extra one. So I keep telling my wife, I hate bringing medical drama into this house. And I do it a lot. So I'm well aware of what my wife does for me. I really work hard. My wife doesn't cook. I cook. She doesn't clean the kitchen. I clean the kitchen. Uh, my wife, because of her busy job of being the CEO of a real estate firm, really needs support. So yeah, caregivers take a lot of abuse and they work really hard until you understand that you need to give back because they've been giving so much to you. So I really am conscious of what happens with my wife. I make sure that she gets her sleep. I do whatever, whatever I can to support her wow. because she's been doing this for me since 2005. Wow. I wish all care receivers were like you. Yeah. Debbie, you got anything? Yeah, I'd like to flip that as, as a care receiver because we – I, we rarely get the opportunity to talk to a care receiver. Is there something that you would say to caregivers that, that you think they need to hear that they don't know? You certainly have a lot of that on the radio side. What Do you have some of that from the caregiver perspective? Well, I mean, from the caretaker or the, you know, the person who's cared for perspective? Well, I can tell you that that, first of all, when you're a grown man and you have a chronic disease, the first fear is, oh, my God, what's she going to do? I mean, you never know. Sometimes people leave when they have these things go happen to their relationships. But my wife has never stepped back. In fact, the reason I have my Dr. Bowling here, who writes a lot of books about MS, is because when we moved out here to Colorado, we had to find a new MS doctor. The lady, in fact, I, for two years, I flew back to Miami for my care because we couldn't find a good doctor here in this state. Well, she researched hard enough to find the one guy who was writing books and who felt she felt knew the most about it. So my wife has really done the work to get me the best care out here. Um, she's the one who finds the therapy for me. Uh, she's the one who, who makes sure that the people who are, in fact, I never go to, a, to an appointment by myself. She has to make sure they're taking care of me. She has to make sure they're doing the things that I need in order to get, to get support for my care. So, so as a person that gets it, um, you need a partner that really understands it. And my partner really understands. She's really here to help. But my wife is Cuban. I always say that. <laughs> my wife is Cuban. She's not like other women. So, <laughs> so I'm really fortunate. I think that, that it, it's important for caregivers to understand that deep down inside, the people they're caring for do, do care. They do love them dearly. It's just that sometimes 
when there's this steady beat of what's going on in my body, you can get distracted and not think you need to, to reciprocate. It, mm. It's scary. That fingernails down the chalkboard thing that I heard for eight years, when that finally disappeared and the quiet came, I needed that. And, well, and so, uh, You were very good to transition once you couldn't do radio anymore. You decided to write. How did you do that? I mean, were you journaling? Uh, how did you discover that you could write? Because a lot of caregivers, you know, they can't do what they used, not caregivers, but care receivers, they can't do what they used to do. And a lot of them, you know, just sit on the log, you know, and, and vegetate instead of looking for something, looking for a new career, looking for a new hobby, something that they can do and, and feel gratified doing it like you. I had a lot of fun times in radio. I mean, my book is full of stories, like my daughter farting into Gloria Stefan. Um, uh, there's a bunch of stories in there with me and Snoop Dogg and, and uh, Puff Daddy and all these music stars that are out there. I had a great radio career, and I helped a lot of people. We raised a lot of money. Those walkathons you hear radio stations do, we raise a lot of money for people. And the kind of radio station I've always run was there for the people. We wanted to help those who needed help. We did all the fundraisers that were out there. And then when I got diagnosed, that was scary. I wanted to write about that. And then I wanted to write about when I finally got the peace that I needed when I changed the medicine. But moreover, I wanted to expose that it cost to be disabled in America. The only thing I could think to do was write about it. So mm. I had the idea to tell the story, but I'm a radio DJ. I can tell a great story. I know nothing about writing. So I, I did some research here in my little local northern Colorado town. I found the lady who created the Northern Colorado Writers Association. And I went to her with this proposal. You don't know me. I'm kind of a famous little radio guy. I want to write my story about my radio career and about my MS diagnosis and the fact that it costs to be disabled in America. And she said, that's going to be great. But you don't know anything about writing. So here's some more homework for you. And she sent me off with a book called Save the Cat Strikes Back. <laughs> Save the Cat Strikes Back. Write that one down because it will teach you how to write a book. So she, for six months, I had to research this book, uh, came back, well, she, and she was busy. She was in the middle of some projects, so she couldn't get started immediately. But when I went back to her six months later, uh, she made me write and practice. And so for six months, I sent stuff to her, and she sent back the you know red line and cross off and need to work on this and then that. And so I basically had to learn how to write the story. Wow. And then she stayed with me the whole time. Uh, I, she, she's the one. She was my editor. She, she did all the work on the book. Well, you're such, such an inspiration. I can't believe how fast our time has gone today. I appreciate you coming on the show. Um, how can our listeners reach you or discover more about you? Or maybe uh, do you do any speaking engagements? I, I don't speak. I do a lot of podcasts. I know people may okay. see me too much. They Tell us how they can hear your podcasts and buy your book. We are all over. Uh, my website is at krcurry, C-U-R-R-Y, krcurry.com. And you can find everything you need there. It tells all the stories about my book, uh, my books. Uh, in fact, there's old podcasts up there. When this one uh, produ is produced, let me know, and I'll put it up there, too. Great. Yeah, uh, so everything's be, you'll, at You'll have it by tomorrow, actually. All right, sir. All right. Good. Debbie, uh, how can people learn about more about what you do? MayorDebbie.com. Much like Kim, I, I really want to help the locals into the local government. So if anybody needs help with that, MayorDebbie.com. 
All right. And remember, everybody, that our all our live shows become recorded uh, podcasts and video casts on your favorite platform. And my number one selling book, Secrets from the Hammock, Uncommon Wisdom for Uncommon Times, is spreading wisdom all over the world. It's available on Kindle, Audible, Hardcover, wherever books are sold, and also on my free membership website, caregiverdave.com, where you can also schedule a free 30-minute initial coaching call to talk about whatever you want to talk about. It only takes 30 minutes often to solve a problem that you're struggling with. Again, it's caregiverdave.com. And don't forget my Caregiver Dave Facebook online community of 34,000 caregivers. Lots of tools, resources, videos, this radio show, and much, much more. And did you know that if you click the like or follow button on whatever platform you're watching or listening to this interview on, it helps us reach even more caregivers by improving Google search engine algorithms. So again, a true heartfelt thank you to my guests, my co-hosts, all my listeners out there all over the world, tuning in every Wednesday, making us the number one caregiver radio show on the internet. So until next week, same time, same channel. May God richly bless you all. Bye-bye. Anytime we suffer loss, we grieve. And a lot of people don't realize what even the grief process is. But it could be five to seven steps ranging from denial, I don't believe this is happening, anger, oh my gosh, I'm so upset this is happening, to a form of bargaining, how can I get out of this, to depression, which is a very serious thing because that often leads to suicide. And then finally, finally, after you realize you have no more control over your situation and you're totally okay with the new normal that it brings, that wonderful, wonderful place called acceptance. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise, like the birds will never sing.